Welcome back to the Helio Hormones Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you that my new program, the PCOS Pregnancy Protocol, is going to be launching this summer. This is going to be a six-week program specifically for women with PCOS who are either actively trying to get pregnant or planning to try to get pregnant in the next year. This is really going to teach you how to stabilize your blood sugar and support your hormones that you can start ovulating, which will lead to regular periods and allow you to get pregnant naturally. So if you are interested, an application is going to be required. I will leave the link for that in the show notes, so make sure you get that in. I'll be reviewing them as they are submitted. So for today's episode, this is actually a topic that has been requested a few times, and we are going to be talking about low estrogen in premenopausal women. So low estrogen is typically thought of as an issue for women going through menopause, but you can have low estrogen in your 20s and your 30s. It's certainly not as common as having high estrogen or we know as estrogen dominance, but it absolutely does happen and can impact your ability to get pregnant. So just a short refresher on what exactly estrogen does for the body. So estrogen is really one of two primary hormones in women, the other being progesterone. Estrogen is the primary hormone during the first half of our menstrual cycle. So essentially from the day we get our period for those first two weeks, and estrogen helps to stimulate the growth of the lining of the uterus. And this is going to be important because that buildup of the lining of the uterus is going to create a home for an embryo to potentially implant and a pregnancy to take place. So one of the most common signs of low estrogen is going to be light periods or irregular periods. And this is because estrogen is needed to stimulate that growth of the uterine lining. So if estrogen levels are low, this lining won't thicken and there will be less tissue to break down and shed during a period leading to lighter bleeding. So bleeding less than three days may, but not always, indicate low estrogen. So typically during your period, you want to be bleeding for at least three days. Also, if you're finding that during your period, you're just spotting or you're bleeding so late that you're not needing to use a tampon, pad, or cup, that can also be a sign of low estrogen levels. Another common sign of low estrogen can be dry skin, especially vaginal dryness. So estrogen helps support collagen and oil production in the skin. It helps with elasticity. So as levels start to decline, our skin will start to dry out. So if you experience vaginal dryness, you may start to experience pain with intercourse or discomfort with sex. You may also experience vaginal burning, itching, or even abnormal discharge. I would say that vaginal dryness is probably one of the earlier signs of low estrogen. So if you experience vaginal dryness, it may be a good indicator that you should get your estrogen levels checked before you get to the point of having really light periods. Another common sign of low estrogen can be hot flashes or night sweats. So of course, we know this as a common concern with menopause. 
but you may notice this especially around your period when estrogen levels drop. Low estrogen levels actually tricks our brain into thinking we are warmer than we actually are, and that causes our brain to stimulate our body to sweat in an effort to release heat. When I say night sweats, I don't mean just like waking up during the night and feeling a little warm or a little sticky. Night sweats is really like waking up and your t-shirt is drenched or you're so wet that you're needing to change your clothes because that's how much you've sweat. So I know it can be hard to determine, especially as we go into the summer months, if you don't have air conditioning, you know, what's a night sweat, what's just being hot. But a night sweat, you're really going to wake up and feel like kind of almost like you had a fever and that fever broke, that's how much you have sweat. Some other signs of low estrogen can include trouble focusing, headaches, low libido, weight gain, especially around the midsection, and mood swings. But I would say the irregular periods, the vaginal dryness, and the hot flashes are the most common three. Let's dive into potential causes of low estrogen. The first is going to be something called hypothalamic amenorrhea. So this is essentially when you are either eating too little and or exercising too much. We often see this with athletes or marathon runners or people with disordered eating. One of the more obvious signs is going from having a regular period to losing your period This is something that I experienced when I was dancing. I had lost my period for at least two years. I might've been closer to three because I had my eating disorder and I was dancing all day. I was doing hot yoga. I was going to the gym. I was just way over exercising and not fueling my body enough for that. However, the good thing is that once you start eating more and exercising at a lower intensity, your hormones can regulate and your period can come back if you've lost it. Post-birth control syndrome can also lead to low estrogen. So while it is more common to have high levels of estrogen coming off the pill because typically the pill contains estrogen, it is possible to have low levels as well. So this is partially due to the fact that the ovaries have not had to make hormones while you were on the pill because you were getting those hormones from the pill. Essentially, the pill shuts off the ovaries. It stops ovulation. That's how it prevents pregnancy from happening. But at the same time, the ovaries have kind of been sleeping while you were on the pill. So once you come off the pill, it can take time for for your ovaries to kick into gear and start making those hormones again. Another potential cause of low estrogen is going to be something called premature ovarian failure. So this is when our ovaries start to make less hormones before the age of 40. Estrogen is primarily made in our ovaries during the premenopausal years. So if our ovaries start to slow down production, we can see estrogen levels drop prematurely. This can be related to stress. It can also be related to toxin exposure. So think environmental toxins, smoking, alcohol, chemotherapy, and it can also be related to autoimmune conditions. So for example, Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition that attacks the thyroid, it's the most common cause of hypothyroidism. And if you have hypothyroidism and you don't know if you have Hashimoto's, if you've never had your antibodies checked, I definitely recommend doing so because you can be taking medication for your thyroid and still have high antibody levels. And those antibodies can actually attack your ovaries 
and cause them to no longer produce hormones efficiently. So it's really important that if you have low-functioning thyroid and you are on medication, you're not just assuming the medication is taking care of everything. You still want to be thinking of how can you regulate your immune system and reduce inflammation to reduce those antibodies. Women with high antibodies also have been found to have a more challenging time of getting pregnant and staying pregnant. So really important if you're struggling to get pregnant that you know your antibody status. Lastly, and I know I feel like I talk about stress every episode, but stress can also impact our ovaries' ability to make estrogen. Estrogen can also be made from hormones produced in the adrenal glands, aka our stress glands. So if we are stressed and our adrenal glands are not able to adequately make hormones, maybe because the adrenal glands are so focused on making cortisol, which is that stress hormone, then our adrenal glands are not going to make hormones that typically are then converted into estrogen, and estrogen levels will be low as a result. So those are the more common causes of low estrogen. Now, if you're thinking that you have low estrogen, but you're not sure how to confirm, there are a few ways that you can test your estrogen. So your conventional medical doctor may test estrogen via a blood test. And when they test estrogen, they are going to be specifically testing estradiol, which is a type of estrogen. We have three different types of estrogen in the body. Estradiol is the primary estrogen in premenopausal women. Ideally, this should be tested on cycle day three. So remember that cycle day one is the first day of your period. So if you're testing your estrogen, this should be done three days after the start of your period. And this is important because estrogen fluctuates throughout the menstrual cycle. So if you randomly test your estrogen and you don't know where in your cycle you are, you're not going to be knowing what you should be comparing your estrogen to. And it's going to be more difficult to know if it's low or if it's high. So it's important to do it on cycle day three. Now, I prefer to test estrogen via the DUTCH test, which stands for Dried Urine Test of Comprehensive Hormones. This is a urine test that you collect at home. And I prefer this because not only does this look at estradiol, that estrogen that we're checking in a blood test, but it looks at those two other estrogens as well. It can also tell us how your body is breaking down estrogen. It looks at those estrogen detox pathways, and we can see if maybe your body is just breaking down estrogen too fast. We can also see what's happening in your adrenal glands. So if the low estrogen is related to your adrenals, then we can see, okay, are the adrenal glands not making enough hormones? Are they not making enough DHEA, which is that hormone that can be later converted into estrogen? Testosterone is also a hormone that can be converted into estrogen. The Dutch test lets us look at that as well. So for me, I really think the Dutch test is just so comprehensive, but I know that's not accessible for everyone. So if you are going to ask your conventional medical doctor for a blood test, you want to make sure you're testing estrogen on cycle day three. Okay, so why care about low estrogen levels? The first is going to be for fertility. So while having light periods or absent periods may seem convenient because we're not bleeding every month or bleeding heavily every month, especially in the summer when you're going to the pool or the beach, that might seem like the dream. But really, if estrogen levels are low and the uterine lining cannot fully develop, then we're not going to have this essentially like 
when the lining of the uterus is building up, it's creating this kind of like a cushy home for the embryo to implant. So if that lining is too thin, it's going to be very difficult for the embryo to attach and it's going to be difficult for pregnancy to take place. You also need to consider why your estrogen is low. So for example, if you're under eating or over exercising, your body is going to prioritize you. It's going to prioritize anything that you are eating and give that to you. And your body is going to know that it cannot get pregnant right now because it cannot afford to give any nutrients to that growing fetus. Another concern with low estrogen levels long-term is increased risk of osteoporosis. So estrogen helps to keep our bones strong. So if your estrogen levels are low, especially earlier than you know, around 50 when you would typically expect to go through menopause, then you are going to have all that extended time of low estrogen. Your bones are going to have more time to become weaker and you may be at a higher risk of developing osteoporosis, which can lead to bone fractures later on in life. It can be hard once you enter osteoporosis to build your bones back up. So it's really important to get ahead of low estrogen sooner than later. Also important to note if you've had a hysterectomy, whether a partial hysterectomy or a full hysterectomy at a very young age, you want to be talking to your doctor about whether you should be on hormone replacement therapy to keep your bones strong throughout your 30s, 40s, 50s. And then another potential risk of low estrogen long-term is going to be heart disease. So low estrogen can cause our blood vessels to become stiffer, which can lead to high blood pressure and heart disease. So it's not just about fertility, although that is a huge concern with women and it's probably the number one reason why women realize their estrogen is low in the first place, but it's important to consider your heart health and your bone health later on in life as well. All right, so now let's dive into some natural ways to increase estrogen levels. So number one is going to be making sure you're eating enough healthy fats. We need fats to make hormones like estrogen. This is why it's important to include a healthy fat with every meal. Even when my patients are eating fat-free yogurt, I ask them why, you know, like, why are we so afraid to eat fat? Fat is not going to make us fat. We already know that, you know, it's the sugar that leads to weight gain and blood sugar imbalance and hormone disruption, but healthy fats are needed to support estrogen production. I've actually seen in some women who have really low cholesterol, like really low cholesterol levels, their estrogen tends to be low as well. So it's important, you know, of course we don't want high cholesterol, but if you have really low cholesterol and signs of low estrogen, that could be an indicator that you're not getting enough fat in your diet. Now, I personally don't recommend calorie counting or macro counting to my patients because I just don't think it's a healthy mindset for most women to be in. I don't think that we need to be counting our food for the rest of our life. I do often get asked how much fat should I be eating per day or per meal, and it's really going to vary on the person. It's kind of like a trial and error and just to see how you feel with a certain amount of fat in your diet. But in general, I recommend trying to include at least one serving of fat with each meal. 
And then if you're eating whole nuts, usually about a quarter cup is a serving. Now, this is all very general, but this is just to give you an idea of what a serving is so that you know three nuts on your salad isn't going to be a full serving of that. Doing something like half an avocado or three to four ounces of salmon is also going to be getting in healthy fats in your meal. So just kind of taking an inventory of where in your diet, you know, is it breakfast that you're missing fats? Is it lunch? I would say most often it tends to be breakfast. So if you can start to work on incorporating a healthy fat there and really build that habit, then you're going to be working towards supporting healthy hormones. Along with making sure you're getting enough healthy fats, making sure you're eating enough carbohydrates. And this is also a common mistake I see women making is cutting out carbs just focusing on protein and veggies. Maybe they're including a little bit of healthy fats because they've heard it helps their hormones, but they are completely avoiding carbs. They're avoiding oats and brown rice and whole grains and potatoes. The thing is our adrenal glands need carbs. And when we restrict, our adrenal glands struggle to make any other hormones besides cortisol because cortisol is going to help to increase our blood sugar levels. So essentially, if we are restricting carbs and our blood sugar drops for a prolonged period of time, our adrenal glands are going to prioritize correcting our blood sugar and our sex hormones are going to be kind of put on the back burner as far as what is being produced. So in general, aim to fill a quarter of your plate with carbs, including brown rice, quinoa, oats, lentil, beans, potatoes, sweet potatoes, things like that. And then reconsidering your exercise. If you run marathons or if you're doing Orange Theory five to six times a week and you're not feeling great, then it may be in your best interest to try to switch to lower impact movement like long walks, Pilates, yoga, short strength training workouts, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of lifting weights. I know that for some people, they really love the endorphin high that they get from running long distance or doing something like Orange Theory, but you have to also consider at what cost. And it definitely can you know, take some time to transition to doing something like Pilates over high-intensity workouts. So start small. You know, If you go to Orange Theory five times a week, maybe for a month you drop down to four times a week and you do something like Pilates that fifth day. Once you've kind of gotten that into your routine, maybe drop Orange Theory down to three days a week and then do Pilates and strength training, you know, once a week each and start to slowly cut back. And, you know, you may find that as you move slower and start feeling better, then you can kind of see the benefit of like, okay, I don't necessarily need to be drenched in sweat by the end of the workout and I can still feel good in my body and feel strong and long and still get kind of that mental peace and clarity that I get when I exercise. I would especially consider this if you are struggling to get pregnant and you think it might be related to low estrogen levels. Now, of course, everyone wants to know usually like what can I take to increase my estrogen levels because everyone, you know, we've grown up in a system, a medical system where it's like just take this pill and it will fix your problems. I really think that diet and exercise are fundamental, but there are a few supplements that can help to increase estrogen levels. Now, I share this 
as education, but make sure you talk to your doctor before starting anything because depending on what your entire hormone picture looks like, not just your estrogen, that's going to determine which of these options is maybe better for you. The first is going to be to supplement with DHEA. DHEA is a hormone that is made in the adrenal glands that can be then be converted into other hormones like testosterone and estrogen. Now, because this hormone can be converted into testosterone, then if you have PCOS and you have high testosterone levels, but you have low estrogen, then DHEA may not be the right fit for you. So it's important to really know what your other hormones are doing before you just start taking DHEA. I have found DHEA though to be really helpful for women who are struggling to get pregnant, related to low estrogen levels, who maybe do not have high testosterone or other high androgen hormones. And DHEA is probably one of the more common naturopathic supplements that conventional fertility doctors recommend to their patients. This is one that I'll put my patients on and they'll say, oh yeah, my conventional fertility doctor already started me on it or recommended that as well or told me to consider it. So DHEA is pretty well understood across the board, regardless if you're working with a naturopathic doctor or a conventional doctor. Another supplement that can be really helpful, and this is a common one that's used with menopausal women, is black cohosh. So this is a plant that contains phytoestrogens, which are essentially natural compounds that act like estrogen in the body. So black cohosh, I would say, is probably my favorite herbal medicine for helping to raise estrogen levels. And then the third I'm going to mention is something called evening primrose oil. This oil contains GLA, which is an omega-6 fatty acid, and this has been found to improve symptoms of low estrogen levels and can help raise progesterone as well. So you can see how each of these are a little bit different. Some women can raise their estrogen levels with just taking one of these, Some women need to take multiple, maybe they're on DHEA and evening primrose oil. So again, just make sure you talk to your doctor about which option would be right for you before you just start taking one of these. And again, you can be taking all the supplements in the world, but if the foundation of good diet and lifestyle practices isn't there, then you are only going to be able to see so much improvement before you hit a wall. If you are not sure what supplement to take or if you're not able to get in with your doctor, start with the diet, start with focusing on getting carbohydrates, getting good healthy fats, eating enough food, don't skip meals, and consider if your exercise is really serving you well. And the last thing I'll touch on is intermittent fasting. And I really need to do an episode on just this alone because I get asked about this all the time. I have patients come to me who are doing intermittent fasting, which, you know, I always ask them, like, how is this? How do you feel on this? Like, do you, are you staring at the clock just to get to 12 o'clock so the clock can tell you that it's okay to eat? Because if so, that's probably a good indicator that this isn't right for you. So I will do an episode in the future, but for now, I'll say this. So research has shown that intermittent fasting does not yield the same results for women as it does for men, and this is really due to us having different hormones. For one, 
Intermittent fasting can disrupt the HPO axis, which is essentially the communication between our brain and our ovaries, which can lead to lower estrogen production in the ovaries. Fasting also reduces the production of a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH for short. So essentially, this hormone stimulates the release of luteinizing hormone, LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH. And these two hormones, LH and FSH, are responsible for triggering ovulation. So when GNRH goes down, LH and FSH are not produced and we don't ovulate. And when GNRH goes down, we see less estrogen and progesterone production as well. So fasting disrupts all these hormones. The hormones responsible for ovulation, estrogen, which is responsible for building up that lining of the uterus, and progesterone, which is needed to get pregnant and maintain a pregnancy. Overall, do I recommend intermittent fasting for women? No. Is every woman who does intermittent fasting going to have a negative experience with it? Also no. There are also different ways to fast, meaning different time increments to fast. So some people will fast for eight hours or 12 hours. So, you know, different fasts are going to yield different results. But again, I will get into all of this on a future episode. So that is going to wrap up this episode. I know I've had a handful of you reach out in the past few weeks asking for this episode. So I hope this gives you some things to think about and maybe discuss with your doctor. And if you're finding this podcast helpful, please leave a review. I know it's super annoying, but it's just one of those things that really does help the podcast get pushed to new listeners. And I know there are so many women out there that need access to this information. So I thank you in advance if you take the time to do that. And I will see you next Tuesday.